non-stop alternative radio network. We are the ones that been waking up the world. You don't want me to go to sleep. Put a plug out of you and you'll be dead. I got a computer at home that's mean that was invented back in 1930-something. You know, the piano roll? You scared that? How hit the computer? afternoon. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. I'm so happy to have in the studio with me Christine Montras. Christine, welcome. Thank you, T. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> it's great to see you back. You're a friend of the show. Um, the last time you were here, it was for your, your book, Body of Work, Meditations on Mortality from the Human Anatomy Lab. That's right. And that was... Um, was that 2008, Christine? Or I was I, thinking it might have been 2007, 2008, 2008 okay. somewhere. So it's been it's been a few years. Yeah. Well, it's great to see you. Thank you. And I know at that point we had said, oh, we're going to talk again soon. Right. So you time know, has flown by. It has flown by. And now it's exciting because um, your next book is out, um, Falling Into the Fire, A Psychiatrist Encounters with a Mind in Crisis. And this is just, just out with the Penguin Press. That's right. It's now. Right? Uh, yep, it, August first. It, it came August, out. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So there's been and you, there's been um, an interview with you in the Atlantic Monthly, and I think you're heading to. Are you going to be giving a talk at Brown also? That's right. In, next week. Uh, yes. yes. Yeah. And I should say we're taping the show. This is September 27th, 2013. So Christine, you're in town also as part of the State of the Book Symposium. I am. And so, um, so maybe maybe some listeners had a chance to catch you there in person I too. Hope so, um, but if not, never fear because we've got an hour ahead. Um, with you, um, so this is going to be exciting. Falling into the fire. Um, Christine, maybe before we start, I'll read the short bio in the back of the book. Sure. Um, Christine Montras is an assistant professor of psychiatry and human behavior and the co-director of the Medical Humanities and Bioethics Scholarly Concentration at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University. She's also a practicing inpatient psychiatrist. Dr. Montras's previous book, Body of Work, was named an editor's choice by the New York Times and one of the Washington Post's best nonfiction books of 2007. She and her partner, the playwright Deborah Salem Smith, live in Rhode Island with their two children, two young children. So Christine, again, welcome. So happy to have you Thanks, here. Thanks, T. Um, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about how you decided to write this particular book, because 
the the bo- body of work that seemed to come into being in an organic way. You, I think it was that you just started writing about the experience of being um, working with your first cadaver in med school. Is that right? And you were that's exactly right. Yeah. So so I started. You know, the first day of medical school, dissecting a cadaver, and I, I am someone who has always relied upon writing to make sense of things. So even as a child, I was somebody who really turned to my copious notes and journals and, um, you know, which I read now and, and flinch when I read, but, um, but that's just been something that I've always done. And so when I started medical school, it was a really natural place for me to turn when I was dissecting a cadaver and all of these issues of mortality and repugnance and death and dying and also educational overload, all of those things came up at once. So I started writing body of work in that way. This is that how, what, how did it happen for falling into the fire? Yeah, but not a dissimilar experience in that these um, falling into the fire is based on clinical encounters, so encounters with patients, and these were the 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 cases that really gnawed at me at night. That I really would go home and I couldn't stop thinking about. And even after I was done treating the patients, the issues that they had and the symptoms that they had were some that I just could not let go of. And so writing was a chance to dive deeply into their symptoms and their illnesses and really explore what they were struggling with and hopefully understand it better. And so were these, I think there's this beautiful part in the early, in your, your prologue, um, Bedlam, um, and you have these great quotes that start each chapter too. Can, canst thou not minister to a mind diseased and from Shakespeare's Macbeth. Um, yeah, like these, this idea of mysteries, um, and that things like there's, even though you went to med school thinking there were going to be a lot of answers, um, but in some ways, you chose the the part of medicine that's the most mysterious. I think I, th- I think that's absolutely true, and that the mind remains a realm that is just fraught with mystery, and that that's absolutely the case. Um, I am drawn to that. I, I've also learned during my time in medicine that all of medicine is more mysterious than we would like it to be. <laughs> right, that right. that oftentimes we really want medicine to be clear cut and have answers, but not just in the realm of psychiatry and all kinds of specialties. And any one of us who's been a patient or had a family member be a patient knows this well, that you sometimes go to see, you can even see two experts in the field. They may not only not agree on the appropriate treatment for what you have, they might not even agree on the, on the diagnosis. And I think this is so confounding to patients and so baffling to us, but medicine is not as exact a science as we all wish it would be. And it seems, um, in some ways you had sort of prepared yourself when you were thinking about going into psychiatry, knowing that, um, I don't know, it seems like there's like that, that concern also, how, how can I be, uh, kind of coping and helping and helping to heal patients that are in, in such suffering or misery and thinking about that on a, a day after day basis. Yeah. It's not something that then just stops like, oh, well, I can do it for a week. Right. Or, I mean, people ask me all the time if my job is depressing. I think they imagine <laughs> that would probably have been a shorter question. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> but, but I mean, I think, I think the idea of working with people who are suffering and, and so many of my patients are really deeply suffering. I think the idea of that is a little off putting or sometimes even terrifying to people. But the, the other reality is um, many of our treatments 
really help people. So there's something intensely gratifying about um, helping someone beyond that suffering. And I also think that the you know the patients that I treat often have endured. Uh, traumas that you couldn't have imagined. They they live in social circumstances that many of us are absolutely unfamiliar with, and yet they're able to really um, not only survive, but sometimes thrive in a way that I can't imagine myself doing were I in their shoes. And so there's also um, something uh-huh. very inspiring and hopeful about the plights of my patients, even though they do struggle with these great illnesses. And so perhaps maybe what we can do is start to maybe thinking about the book a little bit, Christine, and how you um, structure it. Because you, mm-hmm. you start off with the book um, with Simone Weil, mm-hmm. Weil um, uh, with an epigraph, and then also um, the Restoration playwright, Nathaniel Lee, regarding his committal to Beth- Bethlehem Royal Hospital. Um, they called me mad, and I called them mad, and damn them, they outvoted me. Right. <laughs> Well, I I love I love this quote by Simone Veil at first, and um, uh, do do you care if I read it? No, I, please I love do. it. I love please it, and do. um, and I know it's a little dense. Um, so, uh, but but she says to acknowledge the reality of affliction means saying to oneself, there is nothing that I might not lose. It could happen at any moment that what I am might be abolished and be replaced by anything whatsoever of the filthiest and most contemptible sort. To be aware of this in the depths of one's soul is to experience non-being. It is the state of extreme and total humiliation, which is also the condition for passing over into truth. What I love about that quote is I feel like um, we have a tendency with the mentally ill to push them to the margins, to hold them at arm's length, and to say what they are is not what I am, that they are different than I. Um, and and I think what's so powerful about what she says is there is nothing that I might not lose, that even my mind, even my personhood, um, even my sense of dignity could be lost if I were to fall ill to experience some of the things my patients have experienced. Um, and I think that um, that humanity is it was really a driving force in writing the book that I that I wanted I write about extreme cases people with extreme s- severe symptoms, but I, I want so much for people to read the book and and see these patients not as a collection of severe symptoms or as a circus sideshow right right but as as human beings who struggle like any of us might struggle. Um, so once I found that quote. I really felt it to be an anchor to the book. Mm. And and Simone Veil comes back towards the end, also Christine, in a section where I think, um, let's see, what page? Yeah, are she's saying more of the same. Um, right here on 211, she says... Um, to understand, she's talking about how to understand affliction, one must accept our total human vulnerability. And, and she goes on to say, I may lose at any moment through the play of circumstance over which I have no control anything whatsoever I possess, including those things which are so intimately mine that I consider them as being myself. And I think, you know, the patients that I see are often dealing with just these kinds of struggles. When you lose touch with basic 
reality. You know, you, and imagine how unmooring that might be. You know, this is what she's talking about, um, losing something that's so intimately yours that you consider it to be yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my my sincere hope was that that humanity, the humanity of that experience would speak to readers. Well, it seems like that it will definitely then mission <laughs> accomplished, Thanks, Christine. <laughs> and, um, and how you build the book, like there is this... Um, this, because you're investigating not only like these case studies, but kind of drawing in again, as I think you seem to do so wonderfully, uh, like you did in Body of Work, these history, aspects of history, um, things that you're observing, um, and, and and finding new, like interviewing people, etc. Right. And also bringing in elements of memoir and how it connects to you very personally yeah. and, 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 and therefore bringing in a vulnerability of your own as a human being, not just as a practicing psychiatrist. That's right. Because you also expose those or or acknowledge those. Yeah. I mean, I one of the things that I love about um, writing is a chance to dive in different directions and and sort of look widely. This is the poet in you. Yeah, I think it might be. <laughs> um, but I think t- you know to just look at what's on the surface to try to understand a patient's condition is it feels so incomplete. So the, the wonderful thing about writing this book was that the chapters allowed me to pause and I could look into, you know, when I was writing about non-epileptic seizures, I could look into history of, you know, mass psychogenic illness and dancing plagues and all these, um, and Charcot and the Salpetriere, you know, all these amazing historical um, aspects that speak to the condition and, and how the condition has persisted. But also then I could talk with someone about the current neuropsychiatric research and how we understand it now within the framework of of brain science Um, and to me that uh, that helps me understand my patients better it informs how we as a society thinks about think about them and it's just fun (laughs) the research part is just fun (laughs) you had said um, off air earlier it took a bit of a crowbar to get you out of the you know University of Michigan but it seems like you're just always going to be pursuing knowledge and discovery and um uh, maybe what started in some ways. Well, not started here because it sounds like as a little kid you were already it certainly on the, took root the here. Though I mean, someone asked me about my time at Michigan recently, and I said it was sort of like an academic playground, you know, because my I majored in French, but I took courses in history, and then I was writing poems, and then I took woody plants. It was a mess, but it was so woody plants, no less. Yes, yes, yeah, I'm very specific. But it was wonderful because Ann Arbor offers that, so I think it, it, it you know, certainly the model for that kind of reach. Uh, and well, well, this is wonderful. Why don't we take we'll take a short break, Christine, Good. and then we'll come back and we'll we'll hear more um, from Christine Montross's uh, latest book, "Falling into the Fire: A Psychiatrist Encounters with a Mind in Crisis." Out with Penguin Books. We'll be right back. Is there anybody in there? Just not if you can hear me Is there anyone home? Come on now I hear you feeling down Well, I can ease your pain Get you on your feet again I need some information first Just 
the basic facts Can you show me where it hurts? Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Christine Montross is here. Um, and thanks to Stephanie for engineering yeah. and picking these songs. Woo, woo, yeah, picking all these. terrific music. It's great. And the suggestion, you, Christine, you suggested the Star Williams version of, of Comfortably Numb. Yeah, so beautiful. I just find her voice so haunting. And Stephanie and I were going back and forth. Should we do Pink Floyd? Should we do Dar Williams? <laughs> but I feel like the Dar Williams version is so surprising because it's yeah. so different than the Pink Floyd, but it has this really eerie hauntedness. So I love that song. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's so, so full of pathos, just as we are coming we're uh, in the realm of pathos t that's where we are <laughs> buckle your seatbelts, <laughs> right folks. people <laughs> <laughs> oh oh dear well thank goodness i'm glad you're here christine and um this this book is it's it's such um it's it's such an interesting book because with um body of work thinking about both your your works christine um your books um that was such a different experience to read than falling into the huh, fire. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's because, well, I, what I'm wondering is, I wonder if it isn't because you're so good at getting some of the experience on the page of, um, what is, um, providing discomfort, like what people experience is discomfort, um, as like people who are in the healing profession, um, doctors, nurses, um, people around people who have mental illness or this, because wanting to that powerlessness of not being able to help or solve and knowing that someone's suffering. Uh, and so there's so many difficult parts to read about too and maybe more rooted to the particular patient cases because you you do so much um justice to them as individuals that they're on the page oh thanks t i mean i think um you know, a, a lot of psychiatric patients stir up feelings in those that care for them. And I think um, we do a disservice to not acknowledge that that plays a role in the treatment for our patients, too. And and so, you know, one of the patients that I write about in Falling into the Fire is a woman who... Laura? Yeah, Lauren, who, who Lauren. repeatedly swallows dangerous objects. So she swallows bed springs and barbecue skewers. And when I see her, she... Uh, 
as she has come into the emergency room having just crushed and swallowed some light bulbs. And this is a pattern that she's in. She's in her 20s. She, When I see her, she's been hospitalized more than 20 times in the last four years for exactly this kind of pattern. So her, and her folders, like what people hand you, are these thick folders charts. of, of she's, chart That's histories. right. She's very well known to the emergency department because she's not trying to kill herself. She's not suicidal. When she's in a moment of distress, this is how she copes with her distress. And then she brings herself to the emergency room so that the objects can be removed. Because she knows that it's... She knows it could be catastrophic should it pierce her gut or something like that. And so, um, but as you might imagine, patients who engage in self-harm... Um, Doctors have a hard time with that. You know, doctors enter into our profession to heal and to help and to cure. And she is not only harming herself, but then often undoing the very work that they've done. So, um, you know, there would be to times. save her. That's right. Previously. That's right. There'd be times when they'd uh, perform endoscopy. They'd get out knives and scissor blades or, or, or whatever she had swallowed. And then she'd go up to her room and she'd um, eat pieces off of the window frame or parts of the gurney or the knife. Immediately. immediately. So the degree of frustration that that stirred up in the physicians was something that I really took note of. And I think... Um and you bravely also use yourself as an example, I think. Yeah, I, saying, I was not immune to these feelings. That's right. <laughs> I mean, she um, she was a difficult patient to work with. She really targeted um, the people who were trying to take care of her. And I was I was absolutely not immune from that. I mean, she called me names. She um, laughed at my attempts to help her. And so what I really had to do was set aside the feelings that it brought up in me um, so that I could try to treat her just as I would treat any other patient. Um, but I think, I think, um, I think frequently our patients bring up feelings in us as clinicians. And if we get too sidetracked by our own feelings, then we're not helping them. Um, but what a hard, like, I think it's so difficult because you, you feel like doctors can't be mechanical in how they approach each person. You know, you want some sort of personal empathy or like each person's case of course right but then when reading through your book falling into the fire you think that you cannot be taking this personally That's somehow right. because then that will muddle any hope of uh, the healing di or diagnosis or, or I, I think I think what we're talking about though is an is um, an awareness and an understanding. I think you can be an empathic physician and also understand that when you're working with a patient like like Lauren, this is a symptom of her illness. And and in many ways, you know, one of the things I write about is that psychiatric patients can have this acute ability to really hone home in on um, uh, somebody's most exquisite vulnerabilities. And and Why I is that like what is that? About. I, I've come to think of that. I've come to think of that as a little bit of a like like when an animal is like cornered a and survival is, mechanism yeah, and or this, something exactly. And this is not to to equate psychiatric patients specifically with animals. It's to create equate all of us as human Humans. beings as animals. That when you're cornered and you're vulnerable and you're threatened, you lash out. And I think that that often this is the case with certain psychiatric patients. And the and the the role. 
goal of the doctor there is to rely on training and not to be mechanical, but to understand that that what that is is an expression of fear and vulnerability, not name, true name aggression. It. Yes, yeah. name it. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think I think sure it doesn't feel good when a patient calls you a name. It's awful when patients say racist things. It's awful when patients say crude and and threatening things. And, and we all have to protect ourselves. Certainly, there you know patients can get violent, but but in general, it, it needs to. You know, I think an understanding and an awareness that um, this comes from a place of of fear often or mm-hmm. of illness, and um, that's what we're there to try to help with. And with Lauren's case, um, Christine, was it that there was? Um, could you remind me, like, is in her case for because what happens too is that it's not as if like oh, case solved right. in these in these chapters. Right. And with Lauren, I feel like there was almost going to be some sort of breakthrough, but then she was gone again. She, you know, so many of our patients, especially the patients that I see, and you know, I see people who are hospitalized. So these are very ill patients. There are all kinds of psychiatric patients who go, you know, are, are stable, are going to see their outpatient psychiatrist, are doing fine. But I see patients who really are struggling to stay safe outside of the hospital. So um, those are chronic conditions in 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 many instances um, and and the the chapter about Lauren for me also really highlights the severe shortcomings of our mental health system and and I wrote about this recently in an op-ed piece in the New York Times that the paucity of adequate outpatient care for our uninsured or underinsured patients means that they are consistently admitted to the hospital, that they're consistently undertreated, and that that's such a short-sighted means of trying to care for people because it's so expensive and it doesn't, it's not, a, you know, it, it's, it's crisis-based care. Right. It's not longitudinal cure-based care. And so there might even be like solve this or tend to this particular crisis, but then the person's released without the skills to cope or to remember to take the medicine or to, and so then it becomes a crisis again and they're back in the same. Absolutely right. And when Lauren comes into the hospital to have pieces of shards of light bulbs and removed, she undergoes endoscopy. Sometimes she's psychiatrically hospitalized afterwards, sometimes not. But in any event, the, sometimes not. Sometimes even for not Lauren. only yeah. because for her, there's the question of whether there's benefit to it. You know, they've hospitalized her so many times that it hasn't shown to diminish the number of times that she comes in. So what she really needs is dedicated outpatient work with someone who she can know and trust and who can get to know her and and really try to get to the root of some of these behaviors and and but our healthcare doesn't cover that right now you know she was seen once every four months by a psychiatrist for 20 minutes and she had a caseworker that had hundreds of patients and and so how do we expect her to move beyond that if we can't provide the mechanism to help her do so and and this is a particular person that's harming themselves and someone that they, they the people they who love them i suppose outright and um but then this is also interesting to think of so that's that's that su- type of suffering is terrible in and of itself and then you also think there are probably people who may even harm not only themselves but others who are in similar sort of parallel situations to Lauren and they're also then out there having to struggle alone and not and might even hurt 
others because our system is ignoring it somehow. That's right. I mean, I, I think that the the co- a, a year of outpatient treatment costs less than a five day inpatient hospital stay. Um, but also, when people are undertreated, there are all sorts of additional costs that that, and, that are incurred, and criminal recidivism is absolutely one of them. So there are the you know ripples felt in our society: court costs, crime, um, victimhood, drug addiction. You know, all of these things happen when people are not um, in regular treatment, um, and so I think. It's a real travesty that we aren't, you know, it's a very short-sighted travesty that we're not providing the basic, fundamental, and relatively inexpensive care that people need. And and so you wrote recently this New York Times op-ed piece, and then perhaps, like, as this book goes out into the world, Christine, and more people are reading it, um, there'll be more awareness. I hope so. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, what else can, can, cause then it's, it's hard because you know this uh, information and then, and so do other uh, psychiatrists across the country. And, and how, how can we, I feel like we've known this for a little while in our nation. So how, what do you have, not that you can solve it for us today on Living Writers, but what are some more steps, do you think, that that might, maybe people can do? Yeah, I mean, I do think there's some promise that the Affordable Care Act will provide services to people, but I also think just, you know, a a basic awareness of this issue and an understanding that um, as we cut mental health budget, prison budgets increase and that this is just a known fact and that as people are not in their outpatient treatment they are going to emergency rooms and this is different this is no different than primary care either patients who don't have primary care doctors also end up in the emergency room so we we know this we understand it and now we just have to really pay attention to it and try to fix it well here's hoping (laughs) yes here's hoping um Christine, let's we'll take a short break and then we'll come back. Um, and would you mind reading for us? Happy from to do that. Falling into the fire. Sure. Um, so today on the table, um, just out this August from the Penguin Press, falling into the fire: a psychiatrist's encounters with the mind in crisis. Today with Christine Montross. I'm T Hetzel. We'll be right back. I'll fake it through the day with some help from Johnny Walker Red. Send the poison rain down the drain to put bad thoughts in my head. Two tickets torn in half and a lot. Do you miss me, miss misery, like you say We do miss you, Elliot Smith. Um, we do. And um, uh, you've got living writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. Today, Christine Montross is here falling into the fire. A psychiatrist encounters into in, with a mind in crisis. Um, Christine, are you also writing poems now, too? Oh, Because I know that's one of your hats. <laughs> um, <laughs> As you were. Yeah, I... I um, 
poetry and I are on a break. We're going to get back together at some <laughs> point. Um, but, but yeah, you know what that's like sometimes. Um, I mean, the analogy that I give, and I hope I didn't give it to you already, but, um, uh, you know, my family had a lake house, and um, my grandmother, when she was a child, lived in Royal Oak, and her father bought this little cottage in northern Michigan on Higgins Lake, and uh, and she grew up there in the summers. My mom grew up there, my brother and I did, and now we take our kids there, and... Um, watch them splash around and catch minnows but the cottage wasn't ever winterized and you'd come up in the spring and you'd have to turn on the the water and the water that would come out was this kind of murky rusty disgusting water and you'd have to really let it run until it ran clear (laughs) and that is poetry for me I mean poetry if I neglect it man the stuff that comes out is really really bad so um and and then you know then you write bad poems and you think oh I don't want to be writing poems so it's sort of bad it's (laughs) not good reinforcement. So I I really need, I want to get back into poetry, but I need a chunk of time in which I can really, um, really give it time to let the water run, I think. And, um, and right now in my life with, uh, writing nonfiction and practicing medicine and mothering, there is not that kind of poetry time. So I, I'm trusting that a space will open up at some time in the future, but, um, sadly it's not, it's not now. Well, I don't, I don't know how you do it anyway with all this and producing these, these wonderful books that, that are lyrical and, and you can tell that the, that the poems are in there too. And for, for example, like what, you know, you don't know many people who are um, putting together books where they're also quoting Retke, yeah. um, you know, and, and so... Yes. Thanks. Anyway, there, it's all there. It's, yeah. it's all <laughs> hiding beneath the surface, right? Yeah. It's, or not even hiding. Oh, it's, good. Thank or, you. <laughs> um, it will actually reminds me you mentioning the cottage as part of the um, part of your work in connecting with one of the cases in the in the book, mm-hmm. Anna. Yes, I believe. Yes, who is um, introduced as. Um, this is the chapter where it's hiding all the knives. That's right. I think yep. Yep. it's it's not Lauren who's going to be yeah. <laughs> using them now. It's it's Anna. So this was a, a young mother who came into the hospital because she was having these repeated thoughts of killing her young son. And and I say that with full understanding that that creates an instant reaction in many people. And and I think getting back to this idea of of um, distancing ourselves from people, I think that when people hear about mothers who kill you just their say children, you can't understand. You can't understand that. You, right? can't, you hear people's reactions. Yeah, you can't that understand way. it. Or people say, you know, what a monster. How could anyone do that? And I think we really have this um, really visceral, primitive reaction to that particular crime. Um, so, uh, so, so people should read this chapter, actually, because then they will understand. <laughs> uh, more. Yeah, about I mean it. that was very much my impulse in writing about it. Is so it it created that response in me? Absolutely. I had a young You're child a at the time. I'm a mother, um, so to hear about someone having these thoughts about harming their baby was just so um, upsetting to me. At the same time, um, it was an opportunity for me to learn more about what brings women to that brink. What circumstances? Um, what confluence of circumstances occurs? that they have see themselves as having no choice as to commit this crime. And, and so it was really um, an opportunity to, as we were talking about earlier, just 
dive into the research of what do we know about women who kill their kids? And it turns out that there's some really elegant research done by Philip Resnick at Case Western going back decades where he has just looked over and over again and scrupulously gathered data about um, these kinds of cases. And it turns out that there actually are um, circumstances that can lead to it. There are warning signs we can look for. Um, and I think, again, the, the less we're willing to look at something like this, then the less chance we have of being able to intervene before something tragic happens in a family. So, um, But this case for me of Anna was also a real example of the peril of psychiatric diagnosis. So she was, you know, came in saying she was having visions of of stabbing her child and and as I got working with her, I, I began to understand that two very different things could be going on. She could be having visual hallucinations. She could be having command, auditory hallucinations, some kind of command, a psychotic command to harm her child. Or she could be having obsessive, anxious thoughts that, oh my gosh, she might harm her child. Um, and, and if someone is having psychotic hallucinations, the treat, there's a real danger in that. The treatment would absolutely be to separate the mother from the child while you got those symptoms under control. On the other hand, if she's having anxious, obsessive thoughts, as it turned out, I think she was, the treatment would actually be for her to spend more time with her son, even time alone with her son to show that to she show, was going to be fine. Yes, and prove it to herself. That's right, to reinforce for her that she was not going to harm him. But such then, such divergent course of action and not without consequences right I mean yes. I, I think I had such had, uh, such awareness that um, if she was just anxious and I separated from her from her son not only would I be worsening her symptoms but I'd be depriving the mother and child from this relationship on the other hand if I got it wrong in the other direction and I thought she was anxious and in fact she was psychotic and a risk to him and I had her spend time with him alone something awful could have happened so I think um, the, and this is just one of your patients yes. out of many yes. in a day. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But I think you know, there's been so much discussion with the new DSM and everything about diagnosis. And I think diagnosis actually can really matter because it can drive treatment, as was true um, in Anna's case. And it turned out that she, um, I really think she was having these anxious thoughts. She was able to spend time with her child, feel reassured. But, um, but you know, th there's that's not always totally clear. And and so maybe the the idea of these these people the, um, that you're the, who are your patients, Christine, yes. um, in in falling into the fire, then they become characters because they're actually like a the the lead moment of a particular like if we're talking about the craft of what what makes the book mm -hmm. itself. Um, why do you think that was sort of your maybe why is that maybe a natural way? into this, like talking about a particular character. I think I think it goes back to that idea of humanity. I think that um, there's something very true about human suffering, and I think that to talk in abstraction about um, illness, um, you know, Elaine Scarry's 
quote that I'm going to paraphrase, but where she says, um, you know, to have pain is to have certainty and to hear about pain is to have doubt. You know, it's, it's hard to really trust in the pain of others. Harder still when, um, when you're hearing about it couched in, um, psychobabble, neurologic terms, um, even historical anecdotes. So I think, you know, one of the things about, um, one of the things that's been a gift for me about becoming a doctor is that since I was already a writer, doctors are present in these incredibly privileged moments of people's lives. I mean, we are there at birth. We are there at death. We are there at diagnosis. We are there at cure. These are our raw, primitive human moments. And um, and many of these experiences just demand to be written about. So I think there's a, there's a way in which I hope people can identify more with these conditions when there's a human face on them. It's true because then the stories can stay with you, and you, even though you're thinking about like some of the um, the symptoms or or problems that that the the people have, it it actually gives you like, and you go into the history of them, or you. Um, uh, yes, and or I think see the current knowledge of what's happening. That's and, right, but and it's with this person in and, mind. And I think there are ways in which we then can connect to these patients. So you know, for example, with Anna, having talked a little bit about this, the lake where my family goes. You know, I, I tell the story in the book of when my daughter is an infant, and I'm on a speedboat ride with my family, and I kind of lean over the edge, and I'm holding my infant daughter, and I have this flash that if I dropped her into the lake, she would sink and be gone. And the the absolute um, dread of that feeling. And, and I'm not a naturally anxious person, but the fear that flashed through me in that moment, you know, I immediately sat down, I held her super tightly and close because there was a moment where I thought I, I could do that. Not that I would want to ever, but that, if? that kind of un, that moment of, of, Wow, between the thought that that could happen and me getting into a safer place, what if some unbidden action happened? What if what if my body responded to the thought instead of to the reflex to the thought, which is keep her safe? Um, and I think, you know, that helped me understand Anna better because I thought, well, she must live in that fear and, and cannot escape. You know, I was able to sort of calm myself and reassure myself and say, look, you're never going to drop your kid. Um, you're holding onto her so tightly. You're sitting down. But that fear was so profound that it helped me understand if she was living with that constantly, um, how agonizing that would be. And that was a bridge to her. That was the bridge. Yeah. So I think I think too um, that as we tell the stories of patients, because there are these human moments in them, that my hope is that people can also, um, yeah, relate and connect. Christine, will you read for us? Sure. Sure. So this, um, th- I'm going to read a section from. Um, a chapter called Your Drugs Take Away the Love. And this was um, a section where um, a patient came to me feeling rather than as he was suffering, he was feeling quite euphoric. And I think one of the criticisms of psychiatry is that we sometimes are trying to medicate away um, people's euphoria. Or we're trying to medicate away eccentricity or right. difference. Right, makes them completely unique. Yeah, and, and why would you give someone psychiatric medication um, if you're not absolutely positive that they need it? So and then there's Colin. That's right. So I'm going to I'm going to write I'm going to read a short passage that addresses, I hope, that question. So at what 
what point can we know that ecstasy or singular purpose or religious fervor has become pathological if we don't wish to wait until obvious and irreversible damage has been done? Why subject someone to the risks and potential adverse effects of medicine if her precise diagnosis has not yet been determined? The answer is that this anticipatory proactive treatment is fundamental is a fundamental and accepted component of every field of medicine. When a woman feels a lump in her breast, she does not know what it is. It could be a benign monthly cyclical swelling, or it could be a malignant tumor that has already widely metastasized or anything in between. To zero in on a diagnosis, her doctor may first order imaging, mammography, or ultrasound, for instance, to attempt to determine what the lump is. If enough ambiguity remains after imaging, more invasive procedures are conducted, needle biopsies, lumpectomies. If these procedures reveal cancerous growth, still further procedures such as mastectomies and lymph node dissections are routinely conducted to determine whether the cancer has spread. Mastectomies are often done on the basis of a cancerous lump that has been removed regardless of the fact that there are no signs of cancer in the remainder of the breasts. Breasts are even removed prophylactically for some healthy, cancer-free women whose genetics put them at high risk of eventually developing the disease. Women whose cancer has been treated, who have had mastectomies, who have undergone chemotherapy and radiation, who have no detectable cancer in their bodies may for years still be prescribed medications whose risks and significant side effects are tolerated and endured because the medications have been shown to reduce the odds of breast cancer's recurrence. In medicine, we constantly choose between two evils. We eye the balance and weigh the risks and make judgment calls and predict as best we can. Whether our data include tumor markers and pathology results or a collection of mood symptoms and behaviors that indicate a dramatic change, we are trained to be vigilant but not hasty, to be proactive but not rash. Physicians prescribe medicines in order to ward off cancer recurrences and heart attacks and strokes and diabetes without knowing for sure whether these conditions would ever befall our individual patients if we left them untreated. Similarly, I do not wish to medicate people who are simply joyous or loving or energetic or passionate. Still, I cannot ignore that the stakes are high if I misread mania for ecstasy or psychosis for divine connection. So I trust in my study of symptoms and the diseases they portend. I question my intuition rigorously and routinely, but I rely upon it nonetheless. Thank you, Christine. Let's take a short break and we'll come right back to talk more with Christine Montross, Falling into the Fire, a Psychiatrist Encounters with a Mind in Crisis. We'll be right back. Leave me out 
Writers, welcome back. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Christine Montross is here, falling into the fire. A psychiatrist encounters with a mind in crisis. Um, this is Christine's latest book. Um, and Christine, thanks for um, picking that Damien Rice song. I to love play. that song. It's so beautiful. Yeah, it, it transports you into a different, a different feeling, a yeah. place, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, well, we've we've got some time left in our conversation, for which I'm I'm so grateful. Um, and and think it actually it makes me think of um, part of your your book, Christine, where you're talking with I think it's Doctor LaFrance, mm-hmm. yeah, and trying to find um, maybe some answers for how you see your own role in some of these. Um, unsolved cases that are real people yes. very much real people yeah. to you and your patients that you feel um uh, responsibility for and yeah so Kurt LaFrance is a, a world famous neuropsychiatrist and also just happens to be a terrific person um and I I um some people have it all I know no <laughs> kidding um but I really I sought him out because he's an expert in psychogenic movement disorders so these are these are um are illnesses where um, psychiatric symptoms manifest themselves um, in in bodily movement. So um, I went to talk with him because I was writing about a patient I saw who had a, a non-epileptic seizure, which I mentioned at the beginning. So these are people who have seizures that for every bit look like epileptic seizures, but there's no neurologic cause for them at all. And not only is there no neurologic cause, but if you were to have an EEG running of their brain while they were seizing, they would not have any of the epileptiform changes on the EEG. So these are completely... It's so um, confounding, it, isn't That's it? right. So these are psychologically um, driven um, neurologic episodes. Does and, that mean that someone may have seen, witnessed one at some point, and then they are able to somehow their body recreates yeah, it not or their always. mind tells their body to recreate not always t so i think um there is certainly a um there's documented history of a suggestibility of of oh. this and and that was certainly um, suspected in like Charcot's um, demonstrations of hysteria. So one person does these dramatic hysterical, um, strikes these dramatic poses, and soon he's got a whole hospital full of women who are doing bit, these. Right. Well, because you're, you're rewarded a bit yeah, for it that's in right. a and certain on, way. <laughs> yeah. And on, they're on display and they become sort of the special patients. But that's, that's not true for many, many patients. So it's just, I mean, going back to the mysteries of the mind, this is one one of the ways in which the body can misfire. And and there's a tendency to read these movement disorders as volitional, that people are doing this on purpose. That's absolutely not true. The I mean, body can misfire. That That's right. So the, the body can respond to the psychic stress in this way. Um, and, you know, I open with a patient who, who has a catatonic depression. And similarly, I mean, he's not even responding to Joseph. pain. That's right. Yep. And, and, and so the body 
body can actually, in response to psychic pain, have these dramatic manifestations. And it may be a kind of catatonic stupor where the body isn't responding to pain. It may actually be a, a full-fledged seizure that can last for several minutes, um, but there's no volition behind it whatsoever. Which is so hard um, as a person watching or possibly like at the doctor you know, that's supposed to be treating it and that's right. minutes count like to actually really believe that it isn't somehow willful. And that was but one of the, the most fascinating things yeah. in talking with Dr. LaFrance about it because he, he, one of his main... Um, one of his main contributions to the field is educating physicians about these seizures. And in fact, far more harm is done in trying to treat the seizure as you might treat a lasting epileptic seizure um, because they make us so uncomfortable. And getting back to the idea of discomfort in a physician, when you see a patient seizing, even if you know that this is in all likelihood a psychogenic seizure, you can't know for certain watching them. There's no way to distinguish if you don't have an EEG running at the same time. So you have to trust your clinical intuition. And often that's so difficult to do. And people who are in epileptic status epileptica, so the status epileptica, so they are seizing for a long period of time, it can be incredibly dangerous. So on the one hand, again, this is a moment of sort of diagnostic peril. But the longer that that you stand and watch, and I'll use the eye, the longer that I would stand and watch this patient seize, the more I started to call into question whether I was right that it was a psychogenic seizure. So then I, I begin to feel like I should really act. I should medicate her. And and when people fall into this trap, they may medicate someone so much that they, in an attempt to quell the seizure, that a patient loses the ability to breathe on their own. They have to be intubated. They go into the ICU. And this is all um, misdirected treatment. So I talked with him about a patient in whom I had this exact kind of moment of discomfort and, and uncertainty. And and he um, he taught me a lot about that approach, but um, you know a couple of different things. First of all, the kind of maximum seizure management, where he says instead of um, you know don't just stand there, do something. You really want to don't just do something, stand there. You know this kind of inverse of that. Um, but also he he really again turned the focus on what was what was I feeling. So her seizure became about me. That I I was nervous. I wasn't doing something. I was nervous. I was missing something. I was nervous. Everyone was going to think what, you know, what kind of doctor is letting her continue to seize? Um, so, so he, he really shared with me this idea that he uses with his most difficult cases. Um, and it's a beautiful idea. And he uses the kind of historical biblical concept of abiding with. Um, and I loved that. And we talked about that for a long time that he feels like, um, that, that doctors are actually really called to abide with their patients. And, and he means that in the fullest sense of, being with them, sharing the journey with them, joining them in their suffering and in and trying to progress them out of it and beyond. Yeah, that is that seems that seemed to me like a, an epiphany within the book. I think it was. It was an epiphany for me. Um uh, because I, I worried as I was writing, you know, getting back to some of these kind of craft and structural issues. 
Um, I worried that there was something that might be unsatisfying about the fact that many of these cases don't wrap up in a neat bow. Um, But that's that's the reality of psychiatric practice. Uh, And I think that the idea that even when medicine fails, even when we don't, we aren't able to um, cure someone, heal them and their suffering completely, what we do have the power to do is abide with them and to walk with them as they're going through their journey. Um, and I found that idea to be transformative in how I viewed the book and also really my own practice. And that's no easy thing. No, it's actually quite difficult. And, and, and I think we all have had this experience that it, it's, it's hard to really sit with someone who's in true despair. Um, and, um, it's hard to, um, it's hard to stay quiet when someone needs to stay quiet. It's hard to not want to fill that space with reassurances or, um, truisms, but to really just sit there and, and be with them and acknowledge the depth of their suffering um, is a, is no easy task. And it seems like such an important part of healing. I think so too. But, you know, doctors, we many of us have a little of the type A in us. And I think, you know, we are really trained to act and to fix and to mend the broken bone and to suture the wound. And so I think in doctors in particular too, you know, this is not a ministerial calling. This is not a, you know, for many of us, it's not a, a counseling session. This is medicine. Um, and medicine is very much about diagnosis, treatment, cure. Um, and I, I, but so I think this challenge is, while not unique to psychiatry, is a challenge for doctors. What do we do when our patients are beyond cure if we're an oncologist? You know, when someone is dying and and we've done everything we can medically and we send our patients to hospice, does that mean our role with the patient has ended? It, it shouldn't, right? I mean, if you've been the doctor who's accompanied a patient through their treatment, then you should also accompany them through their dying. But that stirs up such difficult emotions in a doctor because there's a sense of failure. I've failed to cure this patient. And I think in psychiatric patients who have, in some ways, terminal diseases, I mean, schizophrenia does not have a cure. This is an illness that has a downhill slope. And so um, can we be with our patients in their terminal illness without feeling so um, fraudulent because we can't fix them? Um, do do does it stir up failure in us, and that that's difficult for us to sit with because we've been type A overachievers our whole lives? I think it's important to think about. And how are you finding the strength for that, then, Christine? Oh boy, um, I am. Well, I think I think some of that, you know, some of the reason that I weave in sections about my home life in the book are really to show that counterbalance. And, you know, I, I say, I tell the story of a friend of mine, Mary Weatherston, who's a therapist, who gave this beautiful example. She's a psychotherapist, and I talked to her when I was thinking about going into psychiatry, and she said, you know, the patients we treat have fallen through ice into a frozen lake, and you have to go out on the thin ice to help rescue them. But you have to be careful because you must have 
You must have a hand on something on the land or else you'll fall through the ice with them. And and I love that metaphor and I love that image because I think the thing that, that keeps me strong in the midst of my patients' struggles is that I have really strong um, folks on land. I mean, I have a very, I have a solid, happy marriage. I have kids who are lovely 92% of the time. Um, and, and I really take that part of my life very seriously too, because I think cultivating that, um, so- place of solace and stability is critical to allowing me to continue to enter into the unstable, chaotic worlds of my patients. And, and reminding you of your, your core too, because you were many parts. That's right. Yeah. And certainly I have times when I feel quite fragile also. Um, and uh, human, yeah, human, exactly right. Um, but, um, but I, I, you know, I, I'm fortunate to be able to, um, leave the hospital and go home and take deep breaths and hold tightly to loved ones. Thank you for being on the program. Oh, today, I loved Christine. it. It's so fun Thank talking you. with you, T. <laughs> well, you're going to be coming back soon. All right. Sooner than later. Okay. okay, it's Christine. a deal. It's a deal. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, today on the program, Christine Montross, Falling into the Fire, a psychiatrist encounters with the mind in crisis. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Steph for engineering. Thanks, I'm Steph. T. Hetzel. Until next time. All of my senses overthrown By the might of your skin And the lamplight on your cheekbone Drawing me further in No sentence I can speak For the wonder so unique Breaking like a wave upon the shore Mercy me for falling free Since you opened up the door The Daily Sports Report Now Conkle sending out the signals, setting up outside. The one-two pitch, fastball, swing, and a miss. He struck him out. Jim Brower with his 200th career strikeout to end the top of the second inning. And Brower is now just the eighth pitcher in Michigan Wolverines baseball history to strike out 200 batters in his career. Howell doing everything he can here to keep the game alive for his team. Eric Feldkamp still working off the stretch. Yeah, so since he came on. Jeff Kunkel flashes out the sign. Setting up outside. 2-2 pitch. Swing and a miss. He struck him out and the ball game is over. Derek Feldkamp strikes out 